All right. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. I'm so rusty. Um, I haven't had to talk in a while, and I hate talking. And I hate talking to people who talk better. And I can hear my voice, which is extra awkward. Um, I told you guys don't do good Q&As. Um, or that no one's going to write questions. It wasn't a shot at you guys. So I was told to give a, a, a medium-ish talk um, or a short talk, and then you guys could do questions. So then it's not as awkward for all of us. Um, so I was digging up what to recycle because the condition was that I got to recycle. Um, so I'm going to talk about something very basic that everybody kind of talks about. Um, but I don't know, this might not be helpful at all. I don't know that when we talk about it, we talk about it like we mean it, which is a relationship with God. Um, because as much as people say, my relationship with God, my relationship with God, most people, when they start talking about what, what they mean by relationship with God, it doesn't even sound like a relationship. Um, for some people, it sounds very transactional, um, which I guess is still a kind of relationship. But um, Or a checklist of things that you do to please the big guy in the sky. Um, but I just wanted to bring it maybe to its actual meaning. If that's helpful, great. If it's not, my sincere apologies. Um, but something has meaning. Um, this is a philosophical part. When a thing enters a relationship. Okay, by that what I mean is outside of the context of relationships, then things might just not have any kind of significance. Said in maybe a different way, something has meaning when someone makes something, when someone does something. So, sand might have some intrinsic value as, as sediment. Okay, on some biological level, right? But you might not care very much about sand, right? Like it's just some random object. But imagine if somebody in love with you travels to a faraway beach to bottle sand because he or she knows that you collect sand, right? And then goes and brings it back. Does the sand now have meaning, right? Now suddenly the same sediment means something, right? Whereas before that it was, it was just a kind of rock. And in my mind, I'm like, what were the other two kinds? There's igneous and metamorphic, but we're not doing that right now. Um, now, usually the thing giving the meaning, usually, is greater than the one receiving the meaning. Right? Um, in the sense of the one who gives, it, it shows something about that, that person's status. Right? I don't mean social status per se, right? Um, and I'm going to get more into what I mean in a second. But think of like value concepts in the Middle East, um, or in the Mediterranean in general. If I receive something from someone else, I have somehow lost honor, I owe them. Right? Like how many of you heard like your parents say, del wegebe, right? Like now there's this duty that we have. They got me something, I have to get them something bigger. Um, otherwise, I'm in the position of lesser, right? It's convoluted, but I'm just using it to drive home the point that there's this understanding, even socially on some dimension, that there's something about the giver. 
And so that's why for us, everything related to God starts with Genesis 1 to 3. Um, and why we're emphatic about certain things that even have made the creed, right? By whom all things were made, right? Like there's a, there's a deep meaning to that. Um, because in saying that the world is created out of nothing, right? Is saying that nothing existed. Is saying that God didn't need anything. There was no war in heaven that required some weird solution of making creatures to fix it, which is like Babylonian belief. Um, it wasn't God's lack of self-esteem, right? Of being like, man, I need people to tell me that I rock, so let's make a bunch of things and they're like, wow, you're so good, you're so awesome, right? Like that's not something that he was looking for and needed. Um, God just was and everything else just wasn't, okay? Um, that small but extremely powerful assertion is what gives all things in natural existence meaning. Why? Because someone made it. Right? Because once you get into the conversation that somebody made something, it begs the question of what does it do? What is it for? Why is it? Right? If it was already in existence and you're just manipulating it, then it's a philosophical discussion about why you manipulated it in such and such a way. But when it didn't exist at all, then it's okay, so what's it for? And so consequently, meaning is already given to a thing by virtue of somebody making it. Right? And so these deep conversations of what is the meaning of life can be done in like three minutes, um, if you get it. Um, the rest is just philosophy when you don't know. Um, and it can sound really cool, but it's really just lame a lot of the time. But I'm sure it's meaningful in some way to someone. But not our talk. Sorry, like I said, I'm rusty. Um, when God made it, he said, it's good. Right, so it wasn't, I made it and like, I think it needs some tweaking and you know, like, let's like add this mod to it and make it make loud noises from the back of the car. Um, it was just good, right? Um, and there was something that he wanted in the creation and that was relationship. Right? He wanted it to be mutually reciprocated. We're not deists, we're, we're theists. Right? A deist is someone who believes that there's a God that could care less about creation. Right? He's in, God is in God's world and humans are in their world. We're theists that God is actually actively involved and interested in creation. Now, in fact, he made this desire for a relationship emphatically clear that with man, he particularly wanted a relationship because he gave man a dignity not given to the rest, right? By first saying, let us make man our image and likeness, when before that statement, man was just a creature like everything else, right? He was dust of the earth, created man. It could have been a full stop there. And then man just be an animal like everyone else. Like, no, let's do something different. This is in our image and likeness. Um, giving man a meaningful identity, Right? I'm saying this is a different kind of creation. Humanity, when I say man, I'm not being misogynist. Um, then he had the beast presented before man, right? And told man to name them, right? And saying name them, he is giving them authority, right? He's, he's establishing 
these belong to you. In other words, I made these for you. And if you want to get really deep and really philosophical, it was almost like man gave creatures their meaning. Um, in the sense that in man naming them, I don't know if you know the Hebrew, I like when I bust out languages, like I know the Hebrew, I don't. But um, I've been told in the Hebrew that the names of the animals match the characteristics. Like the, 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 the Aramaic name for dog is loyal. So it's no surprise that we talk about the character, one of the main characteristics of dog being that they're, that they're loyal. Um, so man got to participate even in that, right? Um, and he said, I've given you everything, just till the earth and subdue it. I've given you a task with me, just do the work, like this is yours, take care of it, right? Um, and be faithful to this identity that I gave you because it's good, right? It's, it's, it's designed right. Um, everything was just good. Um, and the reason why I'm starting there is because if we're talking about relationship with God, you have to go to how the relationship got formed, right? Because I think sometimes today we talk about relationship as this like lovey-dovey thing or airy-fairy thing or very mechanical thing. It depends on which school you're into, right? Of being like, no, I'm not an academic. I'm just, you know, it's all about how I feel and I feel really spiritual when I do this, right? And other person's like, well, you can feel all you want, but if you didn't pray the Iqbal, you're going to hell, right? And then another person is like, well, I didn't fast. I don't know if God likes me. Right, where it's just like, all those are random things that mean nothing if you don't understand the context in which you entered into a relationship. Right, They're, those are just events that happen, right? So, God as initiator is what makes him give the meaning to our relationship. It's how we understand ourselves, it's how we understand our relationship with others. But you can't understand a dishwasher without understanding dirty dishes, without knowing where dishes come from, to know why they were made, right? Like, because we often start with the dishwasher and be like, you don't have a dishwasher, right? Like, like, that's the starting point. Whereas it's like, theoretically, you have to go back a bit to know why we have dishwashers, right? Um, and I'm not trying to say we're dirty dishes, or <laughs> some of us are, um, but I'm saying that we often mistake ourselves in humanity as having intrinsic quality outside of the existence of God. And we don't. Like, it's, it's a bold statement, but it's a true statement. We exist only because He exists. And we exist specifically because He's love. Right? I remember in my own atheistic phase, um, and even when talking to other people who are still in atheistic phases, but... Um, like when people say, oh, I can be a good person outside of God. I'm like, no, you can't. Like, I could call you a good person, but you can't call yourself a good person. Because to call something good or bad is to refer to an objective standard. You don't believe in one. So I can assess you all I want. It's called judging. Um, and I'm like, but, but you can't. <laughs> because you don't even know what it is. Right? So you can't say someone's healthy without believing that there's such thing as an objective measure of health, right? Like, you can't say, oh, I think that guy's got, like, some kind of nephrology issue, some kind of kidney problem, when you have no sense of what a healthy kidney looks like, right? Then you're just randomly choosing, I think it should be blue, right? And then, and then we all vote on it being blue, and like, we decided it should be blue. 
So there's only two healthy kidneys who really have some kind of messed up disease or they swallowed food coloring. And then we're saying that that's not the standard, but we still made it up, right? So even if you want to say, well, we'll go by consensus, that's nice, but you made it up. You can't call it objectively good, you can call it most preferred. You could call it most voted for, but you can't objectively call it a right kidney, right? And so that's true of us as, as humans. Um, let's look at marriage, just as an analogy, and we're not talking about marriage. Because um, God uses that uh, analogy often, like in talking about his relationship with humanity, um, even though we're his kids. Can a husband think of himself any more outside of the context of his wife? And vice versa. By that, can a husband make independent career choices or a wife? And I think some of you in your language, I think so. And I would say not necessarily. You will be thinking about your career choice in the context of your relationship. How does this affect me and my spouse? Right? If a, if a, if a spouse came home and like, guess what? I accepted a post in Alaska. It's such a great career opportunity. And like, but what about like us? Yeah, I'll call. Right? Like you, you, you don't get to just say that. I mean, you, you, you do, you just wouldn't have a successful marriage. But um, a spouse can't independently decide how many kids you're gonna have. It doesn't work like that. Um, a spouse can't just decide what to have for dinner even, right? Unless one or the other has given the other that authority, there's gonna be a conversation on some level, right? Like there's, there's some, something happened in the relationship that established even how you do dinner. Right? Even if it's not talked about, right? But something is going on there. To decide to go on vacation, yeah, but we're going next week, like, but I'm on call, it doesn't matter. That's our vacation week. It doesn't work like that. Um, so no, a spouse can't think about the, uh, like themselves without being in the context of a relationship. Right? Once you're in a relationship, everything stems from the context of a relationship. Um, anything you just choose from within it is still within the context of the existence of the other person in whom you're in a relationship, right? Um, and if not, you're just selfish. But um, Now, you might feel comfortable at some point making some of those decisions, um, but hopefully it's when you feel like you have a, de a decent grasp on what he or she thinks, right? It was still formed in a relationship, right? Like I'm not trying to be legalistic, but I'm just saying the context is, is clear. Um, and I think too often we think about our relationship with God starting at the center of who we are rather than who God is. And this is a horrible mistake because it's not you who have made yourselves, but the Lord your God who has made you, right? So when you're starting with the context of you, not even to be quite honest, often understanding who you are, because the best saints in history, St. Anthony, said, he who knows himself knows God, but that's a life's work. Um, this is why every once in a while you hear God say things like, didn't I make you? Or in KJV, it is, not, is it not I who fashioned you? Um, it's why you hear some language you might not like, like, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Um, or, can the thing made say to its maker, who are you? And it's not because he wants to be treated like a tyrant, in fact, he talks about that. Um, but because he's upset that you, who were given value, don't value him. And upset is a human word. God doesn't have an emotional response to you. Um, 
which is why I'm getting all Pascha-ish again, but it's why in one of the readings that we read in Pascha where he says, like, let's talk, right? Where he's like, okay, if I am a spouse, okay, honor me as a spouse, I'm not a spouse, cancel me, right? Now, if I am a tyrant, treat me even like a tyrant. Because at least a tyrant you respect, like you fear, you show some kind of dignity, but you don't even do that with me. So I'm a crappy tyrant, I'm not a spouse, I'm not a dad, like who, what's happening here? Right? Where he's just saying we're in a relationship, where he's even saying, let's pretend that the relationship is not between dad and kid, spouse and spouse. Let's pretend, let's pretend the relationship is tyrant and slaves. You don't, you're, you're, you're terrible slaves. Right? Like, just do something nice. Thank you. I'm very encouraged. Um, like, but treat me like a good tyrant. Right? He's begging us to be in some honest form of relationship. I feel really good. Um, um, he's like, but if I'm a dad, can you treat me like a dad? Like, do anything. He wants us to know him. Right? So, you can't have a relationship with God if all you think about is you, right? In fact, all of your relationships will be pretty crummy if all you think about is you, which is really the disease of the 21st century, right? Look at your Instas. Um, I don't have it, so I have no idea what you're gonna tell them there. Um, what used to be Facebook, Twitter, like all these things. Even I remember when Twitter came out, and I remember when I say this, when somebody, I guess I'm old, um, but when Twitter first came out, they're like, it's basically like Facebook status, but that's, that's it. And I was like, well, that's gonna fail. And I'm like, who cares about your status? And apparently everyone does. Um, it did really well. Um, in 140 characters, who are you, right? And then suddenly it became about likes and how popular you are and your followers and, and your influence. And suddenly we have a profession called social media influencer. Um, I have no idea even what that means. Um, where apparently you're so cool that everybody wants to be like you um, because all you do is talk about you um, online. So we have that disease, but those make for really poor relationships, right? And it also affects your language. This is the, I just think, I just feel, I totally hear you. I just think that if you understood this point, you'd probably change your mind. Um, that kind of language and thinking where it's me, 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 right? Even if it's said really nicely, really eloquently, really self-deprecatingly, the core of it is still me, right? So if all you think about is you, what you think, what you feel, what you want, what you wish, what you prefer, what you deduced, then you are the center of your reality, right? And so you're, gonna, you're, you're not going to be successful in relationships. So like your partner might be having a terrible day and you're like, that's nice, but I just had the worst day ever, right? And it's just like, yeah, me too. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that was so terrible, right? Or you listen to them and be like, when, when I'm in those situations, here's what I do, right? And it's all you, right? Like it's, 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 it's horrific. Um, no offense, actually no offense. Um, you can't, be a good son or daughter to God if you don't know who he is because it's who you are, right? If you're the child of God, if you're in his image and likeness, if you don't know who God is and you don't even know who you are, 
right? So you've been living as the blue kidney and have no idea, right? Like you don't, you, you don't even know who you are, right? Um, you can't be a good servant in church, which I mean, people might not care as much about anymore, but if you don't know who God is, I would take it further and say you can't even be a good friend if you don't know who God is. Because the context of everyone's identity, baptized or not, is that they're in the image and likeness of God. So if I don't even know who God is, and I don't even know, when I say things like, I want what's best for my friend, well, what's best? Because there's an objective answer to that a lot of the time. And if not, there's an objective reference to base the subjective upon. Right? But if I don't even know that, right, then I'm, I'm not actually a good friend. I might be telling somebody, it's like when people would get their medical advice online um, and being like, no, I read this article, I think what you really need is just alfalfa sprouts, right? And like to another person, like I heard that chicken is the cure for that and they get gout because of you, right? But it's, it's because there's an objective, we're trying to get it, because there's an objective reality out there and you're paying no heed to it. You might be giving, in the best of intentions, advice to your pal and harming them, but you are not helping them, right? So even that is a thing. Um, why, again, because you're trying to build something void of context, right? And you're trying to make it work in a context for which it wasn't designed. Right? So you're taking a real thing and shoving it in a new place and being like, I'll tell you what to do with this dishwasher. Right? Put all of your power tools in it and that's, that'll do it. Right? Like, actually, it's a power tool storage device. Right? And you gave it a brand new meaning. Right? And I mean, that might be benign, but there's sometimes where it's not benign. Right? Where now you're actually done damage. Um, so what does your relationship with God even look like? Before you even pray, and we might get to that, who do you think he is? Right? Imagine if I've never met him in a Danny, and I run up to him, although this analogy doesn't work very well for me because he might take it well, but if I give him like a noogie and ask him like how his squash game was, I just assume he plays squash. I don't even know who plays, right? Um, and I'm lunging, lunging at a person with an attitude that he's me. I would hate being getting a newbie, but I do like squash. Um, what if he hates squash? Right? What if he hates being touched? <laughs> right? What if he's giving me every sing signal that he knows to say, I'm not in the mood to talk, and I'm forcing myself on him? Right? Who's God? Right? Like, like do, do, you, do you have any of those thoughts about God? Right? When you're approaching about who he actually is. That's the starting place. God, who are you? Right? Moses did that. Right? That was the first question Moses had in his conversation with God. Who are you? Right? And God didn't shy away from answering. Right? He, he gave him an answer. Um, Uh, the answer to who God is, as we said, but I'm not, I don't know if we can spend much time on it, is, is the answer to who you are. Um, but, the, but the answer to who you think God is, is going to totally direct how you deal with Him. Because if you think that God is a tyrant, not just in the context of, of the passage we read, you're going to deal with Him like that. 
right? You're gonna deal with him with trepidation and fear and apparently I'm just never good enough and like, okay, I gave you all my money, I fasted, like, where's this? Like, why is life going badly? I say nice things about you, I bow, I re like, I do all that stuff and you're gonna, you're gonna wonder why that's happening. Um, you'll lie when necessary because you're afraid that you'll get blasted, right? You're gonna, you're gonna react accordingly. Um, you'll probably suck up by telling him how good he thinks he is and how bad others are. Um, you might try and get others in trouble that bother you by telling them they said bad things about him. Um, if, you view, if you view him as punitive only as a personality, you're probably eventually going to rebel. Right? You might start off by cowering and trembling, but you'll reach a breaking point at some point and be like, I'm not doing this. Deuces and peace out. If you think he's an idiot, um, you won't give him the time of day, right? So who is he is a really, really, really important question. Um, and that's why in the Bible, they often spoke of God through what he did, right? All those um, names of those places in the Old Testament, they named it Jehovah this, they named it that. It's always the name of God followed by a verb, right? The Lord who gives, the Lord who heard. Right? It's, it's, it's marking an event or saying, here's something we found about, a God, about God in this event in this place. Right? This is where this happened. Um, the Lord who fought our wars. Right? We sing that in the Tzedakah. Um, but the characteristics of God are actually the virtues in their perfection. So virtues, again, when you start to understand context of relationship, are not arbitrary or random. Right? They're characteristics of God. That's what makes them absolutely right. And then because we're in His image and likeness, we have them too, only we can use them wrongly. We call those vices. Right? That's why even in the language of spirituality, often we're talking about a vice. A vice is almost always a misdirected virtue. Right? It's something that I have that's positive, that's simply being used in a wrong way. Right? Even lust. Right? I have a strong capacity to love, I'm just doing it in a wrong way. Right? And I'm, I'm, I like to use the expression of you're, you're watering concrete. Right? Where you've got a hose with water and instead of pointing it at the grass, you're pointing at the concrete. Nothing's going to come from it. Right? But point it at the right thing. But the context of virtue only is real if it's rooted in who God is. If it was a random list of like, here are good things that would be nice for humans to be, then it's just random. But if it's designed, then it has meaning and it has rightness. That's what changes the whole thing. So you need to get to know him and you need to do something to get to know him, right? The main one everyone talks about, it's not the only way, um, is the Bible. When you read it, you'll find out more about him, right? And it's mind-blowing because everybody rolls their eyes at the whole read the Bible and pray. And I'm like, yeah, do you do that? Right? Like, do you actually do that? Right, because then almost everybody's top of the list is, yeah, I didn't pray enough, I didn't really read the Bible, um, I took the Lord's name in vain, I said bad things, I looked at bad things, I just didn't think about it, right? And it's like, again, you've turned God into this list of these things you didn't do. But when you read the Bible, do you read it asking who God is? I still do that to this day, I haven't stopped that question when I read the Bible. Who are you? Right? And then when you get into that when you're reading, you might actually have something turn on, right? Or just being like, hey, how come you're annoyed when Zacharias, since we read that reading recently, said, how could this be? 
and the guy goes mute for six months. And St. Mary, like a week later, says, how can this be? And she's fine. Right? Now you're asking a question. Okay, God, why did that bother you not this? Okay, you seem really like not jiving with the Pharisees. You're blasting them all the time. And yet you're cool with Nicodemus, who's also a Pharisee. What's up with that? Why are you okay with the lady committing adultery, even though that's really messed up and apparently you don't like it? We read all about it in the Old Testament and you're completely chill, apparently, about it. But you're so upset at this person who said this. If you're paying attention to the question of God, who are you? And I just left the note. Um, I'll find it in a second. Then you're not going to learn much about who he, about who he actually is. Right? When you are praying, again, if you're paying attention to who God is, you're like, God just doesn't answer me. It begs the question of, well, how does God answer people and how do you know the answer to that question? It's like, or we talking about earlier, and I overuse this example, if you're like, yeah, yeah, I messaged AP and he didn't answer. If you had some weird expectation that AP is good at his phone, you'd be very disappointed, right? And be like, no, he doesn't answer, right? And then be like, yeah, I tried. Apparently he doesn't love me. And it's like he doesn't answer anyone or their mom. And then it becomes, okay, so that's normal. But now you have a factoid about AP that makes it make sense, right? Whereas if you didn't, so if it's like God didn't answer, what were you expecting? Not as in, because God doesn't answer. Did you think that there was going to be divine script written on the wall, right? Or being like, and here's my answer, the love and sound. Right? But if you're reading the Bible regularly and being like, well, how was God usually interacting with humanity and how frequently? For example, Abraham, who was said spoke with God like he, was a, like he was a friend, him and Moses, right? And it's like, you pay attention to your reading and it says, Abraham was 86 years old and the Lord said X. And then the next section starts with, and Abraham was 99 when the Lord then spoke. Abraham spoke with him like a friend and heard his voice 13 years later. Right? And you're like, God, I'm giving you five minutes. Come down and respond to my list. Right? Here's what I'm worried about. Here's what I want. Here's my ask list. And here's my whatever list. And, and uh, yeah, thank you. You're so good. You're so awesome. And all that nice stuff that you want to hear. But for real, like, get me a job. And I need a raise. And I would like to get my license. And I need to get into med school. Because how could I be a Christian if I'm not? And then how am I going to get married? And while I'm there, please give me some of I can't believe you put me in this relationship. That sucks. I don't know how you did this to me. But anyways, you are blessed and full of glory and honor. Um, check. Did my prayers. Right? Um, and somehow you are in a relationship with God. I don't know what crack you're on. Okay? But that's not a religious kind. Um, so you have to get to know who he is. Right? Otherwise you have wrong expectations. And then you're blaming him for not meeting your expectations. Because you're not treating God as a who, you're treating God as an it. And so when it isn't conforming to you, then you have objectified God, you have objectified religion, it has no real meaning anymore. You ruined it. Why? Because you just created a new religion and don't even know it. Because you've created a religion in which you are God. It's just not working because it's a false religion. Because the world, because it factually isn't at your command, won't be responding to you. So you can try it. We all do it. It just doesn't work. 
Um, so you have to do work, right? Um, the aim of your spiritual life, so-called, is to be one with Him perfectly, right? As, as, as we were designed to be. Unlike you and me, God is unchanging, right? So we don't have a concern that God's going to be unstable. How do, I, how do I unite to this unstable being? That's not an issue. The instability is, is always coming from our side, right? Um, and so the focus or the locus of your relationship with God has to be God himself, not you first. Right? It can't, it, it can't start with the opposite way. And the trying to figure out God means actively doing that. Right? Not just the Bible. There's patristics. That's not for everybody, but it's a way. Right? Hagiography, lives of saints. That's a way. It can be through guidance. It can be through retreats. It can be through nature. It can be through discipleship. It can be through sport. Like, it's, it's not just one. Right? But they're, they're, the context of it all is coming back on some level to who is God actually. Even if you don't find out right away. Right? And, 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 and more than anything, time. If none of your time in any way is going towards God, and I don't even only mean specific time of day, which I also mean. But I mean, like in the marriage analogy you talked about earlier, if my spouse is on my mind, I'm already thinking of that in my mind, right? That's, that's already part of it. But time does something. Time and space does something, right? If I were to be at some homie's house that's a gamer, and, and he's like addicted and barely talks because he's so into the game. If I spend one month in my dude's basement, oh, you don't have those in California because you're missing out whatever you guys have, wherever you play games, um, the man cave, um, I am bound to learn something about my friend even if he's not talking that much while playing. I'm going to see what he's like when he's angry, when he loses, when he wins, when he's frustrated, when he's hungry. All that's going to come out just from having been there. Right? That's why, like, even... If you don't actively every time make, oh my goodness, it was such a successful time with my friend, right? Today I learned these facts about my friends, right? That's not how we deal in real life most of the time. If you do, cool, like it's fine, just most of us don't, right? But these time and space activities done together inevitably make me get somebody better, right? Where it'll be like, I could say about my brothers in the brotherhood, I wouldn't ask Abuna that way. That's, that might rub him the wrong way. Right? I can have a sense of something like, oh, they would love this. Right? Like, yeah, get them this. They would totally, that would be a thing that they like. Why? Not because there was a day where they declared, I like, and then gave a list. My time and space shared with that person made me know. Right? We did stuff together, and inevitably it came out. We went out to eat, and I found out that he ate sushi. Right? It just happens because we're together. It just happens. Right? We treat this getting to know part almost like kindergarten, where, like, like what's your favorite color? 
Okay, what's your favorite number? Right, what are your parents' names? Like, uh, we were weird back then. But is, that's not how it happens anymore, right? Like, that can be, but it's not how it happens for most of you. And yet, you kind of want it to magically happen with God. I'm just saying, fix that, right? Spend the time, and you will know. And the ways to know are many, right? I would actively recommend using your gifts as being a starting point. If any of you says you don't have a gift, you're a liar, because um, everyone has a gift. You might just not recognize it, right? If you don't know what that is, think about what makes you the most happy. If you could design a schedule of your making for one week, we had unlimited resources of time, sleep, blah, 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 what would you put in it? And whatever you'd put in it, is going to be either what you're good at or what you really like. Whatever you're really good at or would really like is an indicator of some kind of gift or valuable asset that you have in you that was given to you by God. Use it. Right? I don't know why you tend to be very, um, I don't know what the word is right now, not self-deprecating, self-punitive, masochistic, where, like, we've developed a philosophy because of humility and service, I mean, like, I'm not good at anything, and I should only do the things that I hate. I don't know why we say that, okay? It's one thing to say, I need to endure the things that I don't like, or for the sake of the family, I might have to do something that's not my, my, my favorite thing to do. It's another thing to say, I have to choose the things that I hate because that's what holy people do, and you're gonna just hate everyone in your life, right? Whereas if, I'm good at something, great. I don't have to be prideful about that because I'm not the reason why that gift exists. Right? I'm not the source of goodness. I'm not the source of truth. I received it. There's nothing to boast about. Right? So if I was lucky enough to receive a particular gift, then use it. Because when you use it, you'll have something to talk to God about. Right? One of my closest friends in Canada is a car guy. I, that's not my thing. Right? So it would be like, he could, he, if he had the right guy to geek out with, he could talk about all the stuff that he does. All his summers, he'd fix everybody in their mom's cars, literally. Right? I'm like, I have no interest. So my commonality with this closest friend of mine was not cars. Other people, it was. Right? So we have a dad, we have a God who has all of the gifts. I might only be able to geek out with him on a certain point because that's the part that I share with him. Great. That's why we have people who are good at things. That's why with even within the family, within the community, they'll be like, oh, that question, that issue, go to so-and-so. Because we've been able to identify as a community that that guy is good at that, right? Start there, right? Because then, like, like if, if your thing is service, if it's, let's say it's community service, if you're out with the poor because you just really identify with that for whatever reason, Right? You have that in you because of the attributes of God that you share with God. Your conversation with God, including questions, could easily circle around that. Of being like, yo, what's up with that guy? I hope he's okay. God, are you helping him out? Why is this happening to him, God? Like, that's what you're allowed to ask. Right? What do I do about this? I really want to do this, but now this is in the way. Do I take this decision? Because now it might not allow me to do that. Suddenly, a whole world could be coming out of just this place that you live in. Right? 
there's, there's, there's a million ways to do it, so get on it. Number one is, is do the work, okay, to know who God is. Be with God, use your gifts. Second is do dialogue with Him. Um, like, you can hear about somebody and be moved by whatever story you heard, right? Like, that, that's, that's a thing. Um, I've heard trustworthy people talk about people that I know, and I felt that they saw something more in a person than I did, right? Like, there's someone I know really well, and then I hear someone else talking about this person, like, I didn't know about that. Like, I, I didn't know that they had that, that gift, I didn't know that they were like that, like, this is news to me, right? Um, I've also seen people speak negatively about people, right? As, as a priest who wasn't raised in LA, um, I, I felt like I've often had both the blessing and the curse of having no history here. Because sometimes, like, I would suggest somebody for service, like, I've been in a church long enough, and hey, I think this person would be really awesome. And then you get those, like, um, oh, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, are you sure? Um, I think you should pray on it, Abuna. I think, you know, like, where it's like they're trying to not so politely be like, I think that person sucks. Right? Because in their mind, in history, some crime was committed by some human that we've never forgiven them for. Um, and therefore, they're unfit for life to ever serve again. Um, I'm not claiming wisdom, right? Um, but by speaking to them, as I'm using analogy, I'm speaking to them. I'm now not just hearing what everyone else is saying about them. That I'm seeing something that maybe some other people are not seeing. I'm not saying I'm always going to get it right as a human. Right? But of being like, okay, that's nice, but they're not like that today. Right? Or like, it might not even have been true in the first place. Right? If it was, are we going to punish them for eternity even on earth? Right? Like, then where, where's the justice in that? Right? But in speaking directly to someone, I now found out about that somebody intimately. Do you do that with God? Right? Do you have those conversations? Um, my point, people will speak a lot. Some with merit, some not. Right? Some people are going to say good, nice things. Some people are going to say false things. Some people's a mixed bag. Um, bag. Um, some with knowledge, some without. Um, the Samaritans took some of what the Samaritan woman said to heart. But the reaction after was, let's go talk to the dude himself. Right? They, they took what she said, they were affected by it, and then they're like, no, 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 let's go talk to him directly. And they even say to him, we believe because of what she said, but now we believe because we, we, we know you. Right? So some of you might be in a phase where you believe in him or your knowledge of him or your characteristics of him are through others. There's a place for that. Okay? It's not wrong. How much better when it's no longer secondhand? Right? Then it's like, no, I now know this about God. Right? Most of you might be like, yeah, I don't know how to do that. I don't have experience. Like, then learn it. Because God still talks today. He didn't stop after Pentecost. Right? So it's like, and then like, well, how come? And, and, then, and then we, now I'm actually just ranting. Then we criticize people who talk about the real experience, either as being fake or, or not humble enough. Right? Where it's just like, no, there are people who really have experience with God and you can learn from them how to do it. Right? I messaged AP, he didn't answer me. Yeah, that's AP. 
go show up at the Brotherhood or go show up on Sunday at the church he's serving at because he's totally chill in real life and he'll tell you that day where we're going to meet. Right? Now, I got secondhand about how to interact with him. Now go. Right? And I found out, oh yeah, it's really real and I, I, I thought he was going to be pissed but he's not at all. Right? But now I'm interacting. Right? You're allowed. There's, there's no rule saying you can't interact with him through someone else. It's just not the best relationship. It's a second-hand relationship. Right? I've had the privilege of knowing Ibn Lazarus in Egypt for more than half my life. Right? If my whole spiritual life today is based on a former atheist philosophy professor seeing the Virgin Mary and becoming a monk, that has some merit. Like, I might have some reasonability about why I'm okay with God. But that's not fulfilling. Right? Like, that's just like, yeah, I'll tell you, there's this guy who knows my, this guy that I'm supposed to be friends with, but, like, he's actually friends with him, and it's so cool. Okay? Like, good story, bro. Um, but, but what's yours? Um, so you have to talk to God. Right? And the starting point of your prayer to God could be, God, who are you? And there's a million different kinds of prayer. Right? Prayer is not only Agbeya. Right? Agbeya is a tool. Agbeya is not the fullness of prayer incarnate. Neither is Jesus' prayer. Right? Because we have these ortho trends where suddenly everyone's got their chotki um, and, and doing laps around their wrist. Right? And then others who are hardcore doing the Igbeya, I mean, those, are, those, those are good, but do you even know what you're saying? Right? Do you even know what it means? Imagine if you walked up to a friend and just pulled out some random book and started reciting from the book and expect them to react to you like you said something so compelling. And it's just like, what are you saying? I know it's really good though, it's in this book. Right? I heard this is what you say to people you're in love with, so I pulled out Shakespeare and I read sonnet number nine. <laughs> I was like, I don't even understand that English. It doesn't matter, it was deep, right? Like, it's not your words even remotely. Be completely different if you digested those words, read them, felt them, and then recited it, right? It might be cheesy, but it's still real, okay? But it's now a different context. It could be cheesy depending on who you're talking to, right? Again, that, that whole context matters, right? I always use an example of what I'm gonna do it again. Out of the depths, first song of complying. Because I'm also not trying to beg on, bag on the Igbeya, right? I often suggest that people translate the Psalms into street English so that you know what you're saying, right? King David is saying, I'm calling out to you from the pits because life sucks, is what he's saying, right? Um, Lord, I'm begging you, please hear me. I'm crying out. Then he says, if you're going to count mistakes against us, we're all screwed. Right? If, you, if thou, O Lord, in Old English, shall mark iniquities, O Lord, who will stand? Then he says something ridiculously bold that I don't think I could ever personally really say to God. But you have forgiveness or we wouldn't be able to respect you. But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Feared meant reverence. If you didn't forgive, we couldn't respect you. Why? Because you hold everything against us, and even saying sorry does nothing. So why bother? That's very bold. Right? Not many of us would think that you could talk to God like that. I still don't. I don't think I have that boldness. Right? Then be the Minefso. Right? But I wait on you, O oh Lord, and I know you're going to come through. Right? After he's cussed out God. 
right? And he's like, but I know you're so awesome and so good, right? There's other songs where David's like, you rock, you're the best, like, this is the best thing ever, thank you so much. There's other days where he's saying, okay, I messed up, I know I messed up, but I need your help. And there's other days where he's like, I did not mess up. Vindicate me, I am innocent, and I am being wrecked. Right? Suddenly, that might be a language that you can find useful. Right? That's something I'm not trying to beg on it, but it's also not the only form of prayers I'm going to get at. Right? So if I can get training in the prayers, right, of being like, yeah, I was chilling with so-and-so, I just, I just don't know how to talk to them. That's a normal problem for people to have. Right? And so what would we say? Start off with things you have in common with them. Or talk about things that you're interested in as a starting point, but don't be self-centered also talking about them. That's why when we talk about prayer, we say, yeah, go ahead and talk about what you want. Go ahead and ask for things. It would be good if you can also ask about the other person. And that's where Bible can also become a form of prayer. Your spiritual reading could become a form of prayer because suddenly you're hearing back about who God is. Then you start having experience with God. Why? Because you actually talk to Him. So then, when you're asking God things, where is God going to speak from? The places where you talk to Him. That's where He's going to talk to you. If you're somebody who's always, your main frame has been always the personal guidance, God's going to speak there. If you're somebody who's been so devout in your daily readings of, of Scripture, God is going to speak there. And it won't be, I have this kind of feeling that I think maybe kind of, I think like if I took it in this way, it might mean, no. It'll be this direct answer. Right? I remember, it's a personal story, we're not supposed to do that too late. In my calling to monasticism, because um, scripture is a thing for me, there was a point where I thought that I might be psycho. Like, I, I had too long of a period between my resignation and going to the monastery, and too much time is a bad idea. I was sitting in my brother's basement because I got rid of my stuff, and I'm just like, what if I'm mentally unstable? And everything that I thought was God is not God. And I panicked. Like, I was just like, it's not too late, I can go get my job back. Like, I'm making good money, got prestige, I might be psycho, but we can deal with that, right? But like, maybe this is not a good idea. And I was like, I stood up to pray and I got a little emotional because I'm like, I think I might be wrong here. And I'm presumptuously thinking that I'm called. Went to read the Bible with what, how I always read the Bible, not a pick at random, just whatever was my next reading. First line that I read, fear not, it is I who have called you. He answers, right? And I'm not a saint and I'm not living in a cave and I don't tie my hair to the ceiling, okay? But if you have a context in which you speak to God, God will answer. What he doesn't need to answer on demand, I'm going deeper in this than I need to, is the obvious, right? Because if you come back to health, imagine if you keep calling your doctor every day and being like, so should I eat today? And it's like, yep, nutrition is a good thing. I encourage nutrition, right? Like you, you don't need to ask about that, right? But we do that a lot. Right? Where it's just like you, you, or you're asking for something that you already know is, is wrong, like calling the doctor and being like, I was thinking of shoving gum up my nose because it looks entertaining. What do you think about this? Right? And it's like, I mean, you, you're allowed, it's just dumb. Right? Like, it doesn't warrant a question. So, I mean, be aware of that. But do, number one, he said, do the work to know who God is. Number two, dialogue with Him 
And just the third point, just to meditate on, it's not an instruction, and I'll, I'll end. Is your relationship with God long distance? Right? Because long distance relationships are tough. Right? They're, they're, they're a relationship. Um, they can suck. I don't, I'm not trying to go in that direction. I, I, it, romantically, I get how they might have to happen, but I'm, I'm just using it as an analogy. Okay? Where am I just texting when I feel like it, presenting the image that I want, just he, like, it's not intimate, right? It's, 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 it's distant, I don't want to get into it, but ask yourself, is my relationship with God long distance? Is my relationship with God secondary? Because the strongest relationship, and I'll end with this, is one in which there is consistency, Okay? Because we're looking for the emotional high all the time. And any relationship in your life that you have, I can guarantee you, is not always emotional. There will be highs, there will be lows, there will be events that induce certain emotions. But you will not always have those emotions. And that is not a sign of weakening or waning love. At all. Right? If you are not bubbly excited every time you see your friend, does that mean you suddenly value your friend less? Like none, I don't think any of you would assess it in that way of being like, I think our relationship is in trouble. When you called me yesterday, I was not excited at all. Right? And then being like, we need to talk about us. Right? It would, you're weird. I'm like, I, what am I supposed to do? Entertain you? Like play the drums? Like grab cymbals and playing them? Like I don't know what to do to make you excited. Right? I don't know why we have to be. Why can't we board out of our minds together? Right? Like, what's the problem with that? Right? That I feel comfortable enough in my own skin that I can be bored out of my mind with you beside me. Right? My closest friend that I, that I was talking about, he got to know me to a point where it'd be like, he knows when my no is really a yes. Right? He knows when I get the heck away from me. Right? He knows when it's like, we're going to watch Lord of the Rings and eat 12 bags of Doritos. Okay? Um... But it was as comfortable for me to be like, I don't want to talk to you, as it was to be like, at midnight, let's drive to Sault Ste. Marie for nine hours for no reason whatsoever, and turn around and come back. Right? Like, that's a sign of comfort. There doesn't need to be that high. What there needs to be is consistency, because that prolonged time and space shared together is how we come to know each other which is his desire for everyone. To him be glory, now and all the age of ages, amen. That was not medium or short, I'm sorry, that was long. Um, so my apologies. Any, anything that my fathers would like to add? Any questions? Questions on this or anything else? Sure, just tell me when to shut up. Yeah, there's four up already. Um, 
The topic of anxiety always leads to how it's considered a sin, and we should pray for reassurance and such, but how can you approach diagnosed anxiety that affects so much in life and doesn't seem to be overcome by spiritual dedication? Yeah, this is a common question. I, I'm, I don't have the personal impression, and I'm not taking away from whoever wrote this, I, I haven't really felt the vibe from the church that it doesn't believe in anxiety these days. Like, I, I do think that might have been a thing, like, 15, 20 years ago, but today, I think most people, like, including clergy, are, are very aware of, of the realness of mental health. Um, I actually am more concerned with the opposite extreme right now, to be quite honest with you, where we over-diagnose and over-label. Um, and I'm saying that as a former pharmacist, I, I believe in science, like, whatever that means. Um, so it's, it's, I'm not, I might be an idiot, but just not for that reason. Um, but even if I have anxiety, I, I, I do, there's an element of stuff that I can do to help myself. I'm not saying that you will cure yourself, etc. When we're talking about, um, from a Christian perspective, about our reliance on God, it's one thing to be anxious because you don't believe in the goodness of somebody. Another that you just overwhelmingly don't know how to accept a, a, a situation or, or, or something like that. I'm, I'm butchering it. My point is that the trust in God part is about, is not saying you're a bad person because you were worried that something would or wouldn't happen from, from God. That's not really the issue, right? There's something spiritually very wrong and you're allowed to feel this way if you just don't believe in his goodness, right? Like if your anxiety is because you don't trust in his actual goodness is one thing. But there's even a level of anxiety that's completely natural, normal, and not sinful. That just requires experience, right? I might be anxious about my exams the first time I write exams because I've never done exams before, right? And then as I do exams more and more, I may have less and less anxiety. That's not, that's not a problem, right? So a diagnosed anxiety is somebody who has abnormal levels or prolonged periods of an otherwise natural worry, right? That, that's, that's completely fine, even spiritually. Right? We wouldn't, for example, if somebody startled because somebody slammed the door, being like, if you were a true Christian, you would have startled, right? Because you would have known that even if it's the devil behind that door, that you're like, no one yells at you and says that, right? So, like, like, no one's like yelling at you for that, right? Whereas we're talking about baselines. So, when we talk about spiritual education, that's something that could be part of your work towards overcoming your anxiety, right? At least from a cognitive perspective, right? Of being able to say, like, I am having trouble dealing with this situation. I do believe that good can come from it. I'm just struggling in this moment dealing with it, right? And we would say, if you can think back to, and this is why your experience with God, if you have real ones, that are your own, not only secondhand, can help you with this, right? Where it'll be like, yeah, I have in my own personal historical archives, not just in others, those are helpful too, situations where I went through this before. I lost my job a few times before. I one guy who lost his job at least five or six times now. <laughs> I feel for the guy. He was psycho the first time, now he's like, yeah, I lost my job again, 
and he laughs about it, right? He's just like, but we're good. Why? His experience was everything works out. He's in a field that maybe that's an issue, right? But on top of it, he, he's made plans based on that he knows how to save accordingly. Like, I have to save differently than other people because I know that my job's more unstable, right? And everything has somehow always worked out. So I mean, is it can be a part of the work. Um, we're not necessarily saying that there's nothing else. And especially if it's a biochemical issue, right, with neurotransmitters or whatever, right, then the church is not anti. If something is, is truly a biological issue, we don't have a problem with a biological response, right, if it's um, being used properly. Any follow-up on that in case I'm missing it? Go for it. Uh, this is a separate question. Okay, any follow-up on that one? Okay, go for it. Uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, a person who does not believe in God, uh, they, they feel no inclination. They, they don't have an objective response to good or bad. But what if they look at, they look around them, they look at the natural law, they look at institutions, they look at the world in which we live in, that like the most uh, common is don't murder someone you know, out of cold blue. What, do you, what is your response to someone who's, uh, uh, who believes in naturalistic law versus you know, the objective morality that we get from God? I would say what makes natural law absolute, yeah. first of all, because it's evolved. I would say lions are not prosecuted when they kill gazelles. So why do we? What makes murder wrong? I would say if you look at natural evolution, where we say we're looking for survival of the fittest, right? And we're also looking for what increases the genetic pool. On what basis could you call Hitler wrong? Like, I'll go there. Because from a natural evolutionary perspective, what he did was brilliant. I'm not saying I'm like, I can objectively call him wrong and what he did evil, because I believe in that. But what he did is very natural. Like, if we want to compare it to the natural law, he created an environment that puts forth a particular stress that only the right genetics can withstand. And if they're the bad genetics, then they're extinct. And, I mean, they withstood. Right? But how could you call him wrong? Right? So to point to nature means absolutely nothing because nature itself is not stable. From a natural biology perspective, we would also say that there are mutations. How do you decide that a mutation is good or bad? That's why even in the scientific community, you're not supposed to call a mutation good or bad. Right? In a scientific community, you just say it's a mutation that caused such effect. But they're not actually labeled good or bad mutations because we don't know what's right. We're just saying that this mutation caused this different gene expression. It was advantageous in this context, but we never call it right and wrong, because there isn't one. So, I don't think they have an answer, and it's not because they're morons, like, I'm not mocking them, right? It's like, I, I'm a scientist by trade, right? It's to say that you just can't use that as a standard because it's not a standard. And we, ourselves as a society, say, well, laws evolved. Right? So even if we're going to appeal to civil society, well, civil society until the last century was always religious. Always. Right? Every single reigning empire 
was religious, even if even if they were idolatrous in our view, they were always religious. Now you've removed that. So you said they were mistaken. You said they're mistaken based on what? Because then you can't say, well, let me use them as an example of morality when their morality was based on their belief. Right? Now suddenly you're, you're in a whole this like it opens a million cans of worms that won't go well for them. And that's why the newest ways of atheists are finally acknowledging that. So old school atheists addressed that head on. They knew they ran into a problem. The next generation of atheists try to build a morality, an ethical morality based on relativism. Where like, no, maybe we can do that. They're like, let's rise to the challenge that you're saying relativism doesn't work. They didn't do very well. And that's why the newest wave aren't taking that route so much anymore. Um, it just, it doesn't stand well, like, to pressure. There might be a, a one or two good compelling, not even, I wouldn't say compelling, but stronger arguments, but I don't think you could uphold a system that at its actual root core is based on something dynamic. The minute it's dynamic, it's relative. And once it's relative, relative means I have a fixed point that I'm defining a distance from. That's what relative means. So once you remove fixed point, you can't have a conversation, right? That's why the best that they've been able to do is saying, what if the base point was here and not here? I'm like, that's nice, but you're still inventing an absolute. So just call that absolute God, right? If you want to call the earth that, go for it. The solar system, your backyard, your tree, go for it, but acknowledge that you've pointed at some spot that you're calling the, the starting point. I want to ask a question that you asked. Why did God get mad at in the cries for, and not say Mary for asking the same question? My personal interpretation, because I won't claim to speak for God here, St. Mary asked it innocently, Zacharias didn't. Right? There was somebody asking contemptuously, like almost sarcastically, I mean, like, seriously? Versus saying, Mary was more saying, okay, no problem, I'm just, I want to raise the point, like, I'm a virgin, so I don't know how that works. Right? And so, in fact, her question was not only sincere, it was so pure. <laughs> right? It's just like, okay, sure, like, I'm, I'm your handmaid, I'm, I'm, at, I'm at your will. But just, um, I want to throw that out there, because from my limited understanding, I don't know how that works. Right? And, and when the angel didn't even really answer her, like his, his answer is not something that would have made any sense to her, right? Like it's not like she's like, oh no, I get it, right? Like what does it mean the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and, go, and you're going to be like, that's not an answer to us, right? She's like, okay, right? Whereas for Zacharias, it was like, uh, B, we're old, right? It was, it was contemptuous, right? And it's just like, and on top of it, he had like the academic background, if you will, that he should know what he's dealing with. He's a priest of God, right? There's an angel, and he's just like, no, no, no. That's my understanding of it. Um, I'm so over falling to the same sin over and over again that I lost motivation to fight, and I don't even care to try to fight even a little. Um, okay. Um, like, you don't have to. I think that, that's the part that I think we're forgetting about in Christianity. You should, but I'm saying you don't have to, right? In the sense that, 
Imagine if you have a terrible habit where you can't keep your mouth shut and your friends tell you stuff that they're asking to be in confidence and you just keep telling people what you heard in confidence. If I'm in a relationship with somebody, then I might be like, I ought to stop, right? Now, if I just say, I'm over it, I tried to stop and I can't, I'm just gonna keep telling everybody everything. It's just, it's just an indicator of how you view the other person. So it's one thing to say, I keep trying and trying, but I'm not able to do it. But I think it would still be appreciated that you're trying not to do it. And then your friend may or may not accept that you're trying. With God, he always accepts that you're trying. Right? Like, there's never a question mark of him being like, he didn't try hard enough. You're cancelled. Right? With friends, there might be. So... I think it's an indication about you and your capacity to love, about whether you continue to try or not. That's number one. I think a good friend, a person who's strong in a relationship, would continue to try, even if they're aware that they suck at it. Okay? Number two is to be strategic about it. It's not to just say, like, you might want to say to a friend, you know what? Do you think you could stop telling me stuff until I get a grip? Right? That's something very humble to say. Right? And so in the context of this question, it's like, what am I doing to remove myself from the context where I mess up? As opposed to constantly going to and being like, I still can't. Every time I go to the nightclub, I get high or I get wasted and I look at everything that has legs. I tried this time to close my eyes and I just couldn't do it. It's like, right, you're at the club. Right? That's why you're having the issue. Right? So it's, there is a question of, am I putting myself in the place where, of course, I'm going to fall? Or not? Right? Because they, there's that. And the next thing is, is guidance is a real thing. Go get strategies on how to do it. Right? Because maybe you're just, there's one little tweak that you're missing that suddenly makes it work. Right? It's like playing the guitar. Right? Almost everybody hits a certain block at a certain point that if you don't just persevere for a little bit, you don't get over and you never get to actually play, or so I'm told. Um, but someone telling you that might be what makes you persevere to do it. Right? Somebody who has done it, right? It's something like, yeah, 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 this part is normal. Right? Or being like, can I give you like a hint? Like, just keep your thumb out over here for this E chord or whatever it is, right? Actually, it's an F. Um, but work at it. You're allowed to throw in the towels, just why would you, right? It's an expression of love to say that I keep trying, right? Or saying, I would rather just do what I want, but I'm trying not to because I respect you. It's a very valuable thing. And suddenly it means a lot more to somebody. Right? Think about like your own, whatever your weakness is. Let's say like you love to spend money on yourself but you barely have any money left. Right? And you saved two or three days worth of what you'd normally spend on yourself to get a gift for someone else. Let's say the gift was really cheesy and really small. To you, it was huge. Because if it was up to you, you'd spend nothing on them, right? Suddenly, when we're talking about meaning, it has a much deeper meaning. So your effort has meaning, 
right? So if nothing else, then that your effort is showing that you're valuing this other, whether it's God, truth, friend, neighbor, more than yourself, it's an offering of love, right? And at least from God's perspective, it's a, it's a very deeply accepted and respected um, offering. Memories from the past sin keep popping over my head and tempting me. My priest growing up used to say this thing to me that I really loved. It was one of those one-liners that just stuck, where he's like, when the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. Um, so just bounce from those. Don't dwell on those. Right? If you give the thought time, you're going to do it. Right? Just dismiss it. Um, I've been trying to get close to God, but I constantly keep feeling this sense of doubt, like just what if he's actually not real and I feel like I'm finding myself in what I think is a close relationship with him. But I feel like the reason that I'm talking to him, getting close to him is just in case, like I'm not losing anything. This feeling makes me very guilty and I don't know how to steer away from it. Um, that's why I'm saying have a real relationship because when you have real experience, you'll have answers. Right? There's nothing wrong with leaning on others' experience for now. Like the Buna Lazarus example as a user is not a bad thing, right? Of being like, okay, here's an atheist, actual atheist philosophy professor. That was his trade. His job was to hate on religion. Right? So when he says Saint Mary walked out of an icon, and he's some white young guy in his like early thirties who winds up in a cave in Egypt in a culture that he detests that's worthy of consideration, right? We're more than happy to, to take the evidence of non-theists very easily, right? Like, aha, but he said that, but what if that's right? And it's like, well, do you also think that these other people's experience, well, what if that's right? I'm not saying build your faith on that, but I'm simply saying it's okay that you do that, right? But when you develop your own experience, yes, you do. But you also need to kind of get into the why we believe. Right? That's like, it's mind-blowing to me at how many people have no idea what's the point of being a Christian. That their starting answer isn't just because I believe it's true, and that you are rooted in a historical reality of a real living being that really lived and existed. That's why we put the pictures up of him on these feasts when he was on earth, of saying, this real person that really came to earth really did this event. And you can say, that's nice, Muslims have a real historical person and Jews have real historical people. And I say, exactly, that's great. They're worthy of consideration. Right? Then it becomes, Jesus made a claim that he is God. One of the points that made people believe him was the resurrection. I don't know how many people actually care about resurrection. You should. For me, when I was dealing with my atheistic thoughts, that was the easiest place to start, was, okay, is Jesus a real historical figure? Yes, he is. Even Richard Dawkins made a big blunder um, by trying to suggest that he wasn't, and it was the atheist who came after him, not the Christian, being like, dude, you're a moron on that point, I would step aside from that, right? The other natural biology stuff, two thumbs up, but not that part, okay? Now, if he really rose, you gotta think about that. In spite of your personal experience, it doesn't matter. You have to think about that, right? If some guy said at the mall, I saw somebody levitating, I have, because we all believe in gravity, right? I am compelled to deal with that. Was it fake? Were there invisible strings? Was there some magnetic field that was giving the impression that he was levitating? 
Because if he's actually levitating, we have a problem with what we believe about gravity. Or there's this whole new thing that we need to discover that does something, right? We don't seem to care to do that about faith. I'm like, if Christ is who he said he is, everything changes. That's the only reason I was willing to put on this uniform, right? Otherwise, this is a waste of time, right? And this talk is completely useless. Everybody is feeling good, but it's meaningless because it's not real, right? So root it in the risen Christ. Find out about him because it's a very compelling argument. It's ridiculously compelling. Um, that, I'm not going to lie, surprised me. Like when I started getting into the reading about it from my own journey, I was scared because even though I wanted the truth, I also didn't think it was actually true. It was I want it to be true, but I'm aware that it's probably not. So my expectation when I was reading was this is going to be a pretty lame argument and it's just going to suck. I was super surprised to find the opposite, personally. I found the evidence, personally, extremely compelling. Um, so that's why, like, to me today, it's even changed how I deal with things. I care about knowledge, I read a lot, blah, blah, blah. But why he said this to Zechariah or St. Mary, I'm not very concerned anymore about whether my answer is right. Because Christos and Right? Because at the end of the day, I know Jesus who he said he is. If I got it wrong about what his mom said, I'm okay with that. Right? Where it's like, we're all in the family. I misunderstood. I got that fact wrong. It doesn't matter. It's not a question mark about whether we're family anymore. Right? It might be how I understand my family members, whether this version of the story of what happened on our last family barbecue is right or not. I don't care. We had a family barbecue. Right? Like, it's, it's now rooted in a reality as opposed to, I'll, I'll give this as an example and move on. Um, Parliament Hill in Canada, I don't remember how many years ago, um, I landed in Canada for visits to my family and a rare shooting happened in Canada and on Parliament Hill. So they were doing these live interviews from Ottawa, um, the actual capital of Canada, not Toronto for Americans. Um, and they're interviewing this one lady, she's like, oh my gosh, she was like so traumatic and like, I'll never forget it. Like, I walked out of this one room and I hear like six gunshots and I went running into this room and I hid under a bench, right? And it's like, dang, that's scary, right? Another person, like, oh my goodness, like, you don't think this would ever happen to you. Three gunshots went out and I just like almost knocked out and I went scrambling and I found a room and I hid in the, cl in the closet. Another guy, it was two bullets. Another person doesn't even mention the bullets. If I sit there being like, hmm, these so-called eyewitnesses, six bullets, four bullets, no bullets, two bullets, there was no Parliament Hill shooting. Everyone would be like, dude, you're an idiot, right? What if this person was under major stress? What if this person didn't hear? What if this person was in the room? What if this person was already in, like, dealing with trauma mode and didn't hear? Like, I used the bullets as a decision about whether there was a Parliament Hill shooting. I'm a moron, but I could sound so sophisticated saying it, right? And so the thing is that we make that mistake with history a lot, right? We're like, hmm, this gospel said this, right? This guy said it in this way, and it's like, well, what were we claiming about the gospel? To use the gospel in the wrong way 
is a disservice to the gospel. The real question is, did Jesus really exist? Did he really rise? First of all, did he really say he's God? And did he really rise? If those didn't happen, then we have a problem. Well, not, uh, with the idea of following other people's, uh, I guess, experience or eyewitness testimony or what, what, they, what they have you, um, looking into other religions, there are a lot of things that millions of people believe in as historical fact that I don't see how we should believe our historical facts. So what would you say, like how do you discern what is in fact something that's historical and uh, it is because so many people said so um, versus something that a lot of people are deceived into thinking is historical fact but in fact it is not. Right. That would be a super long answer that I'll give highlights for. One, it starts with epistemology. What can I actually know? Because it's not just about what everybody says it, right? There's a context to what people are saying, right? So it won't be just because everyone said it, therefore it's true. But there is a certain merit to a lot of people saying it too, right? Like, like there's, there's two sides to that coin. Right, where it's like, there's a reason why everyone's saying it. It could be wrong, right? It could be a wrong reason that started it. But in the world of how can I know anything, what do I have available to me? I'm saying that's the starting point, right? So for me, for example, even in searching the history, I read Gentile, pagan literature, Jewish literature, and Christian literature, not just the biblical, but the extra biblical, right? And I'm just like, they're all dealing with a real problem. The guy really appears to have risen. It was a problem. I don't know how many people realize that Pilate lost his job over Jesus and committed suicide as a result, right? The unrest that came from the Jesus movement was a monumental problem for Pilate. Right? He was recalled because of the chaos. It wasn't just because Jesus rose. But what caused the chaos was Jesus rose. They wanted a body. They needed a body. It's mind-blowing to me that they didn't produce a fake body. That would have been the smartest thing in the world, but there must have been some reason why they didn't get a fake body. Right? We run into a problem with these moronic, forgive me, saints and apostles, but from the gospel version, they were morons. These petrified group of now 11 that locked themselves up, one guy couldn't even handle like a little bit of trash talk around the fire, right? And they're locked up in a room because they're petrified of the ramifications of being associated with the guy who's dying outside, are suddenly running out and saying, no, he's back, when it costs them everything. Right? I can understand the argument of a second, third, fourth generation people believing the story that their dad said. Right? The first generation, no. The easiest and smartest thing for any of the apostles would be like, we're on your team now, you can use us. We were with the guy. Right? We were so duped. We even fled. Why are they ready to die? Why are they doing miracles in their names? 
when they say in the scriptures, regardless of who wrote the scriptures, okay, they're naming people on purpose, and they're saying people who are among us, because the people who are writing to real people, they're saying, go ask that guy, he's still around. Right? You don't have to take my word for it. He's right there. Go ask him. Right? When they say that these apostles raised the dead, they're writing these claims in real time, in that real time period. They're the most, the most vulnerable in that period to somebody saying that's not true. Think of any story that you want to tell. If you've done any embellishment, you do not want to tell the story in front of anybody who was there. Because they know you're embellishing. Right? You want to wait till they're not there and be like, oh, it was ridiculous and like, that's why I, I had to step in and blah, blah, blah. Right? I'm not saying just those reasons. Right? But I'm just saying in the corpus of all the literature that's there, whether it's the miracles, whether it's the philosophy, whether it is the writings, whether it's the person who's involved, somebody like Paul of Tarsus, who's a very real historical figure. Right? By all accounts, by all historians, even atheists that we know really was a murder of Christians. What the heck happened on that road to Tarsus? Because he's not the same person after history testifies of that. And his own claim, and we have at least eight epistles that are uncontested, written by Paul, right? If you want to take a very academic approach. And some of them are written as early as the 50s, right? So 17 years after Jesus is dead, he's already talking about liturgy and he's saying, I saw him. Right? That's something to not toss out. Right? And I'm also saying, in all of the evidence, I'm not even throwing all of it out right now. Right? But I'm just simply saying, all of these things, it's like anyone in the rational mind today would be like, okay, what's going on here? Right? They wouldn't be like, no, 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 no. If they did, they're doing a disservice to science. Right? Because the, the material world is testifying to this immaterial reality. So, Epistemology. What can we know? How can we know? And those tools that we have. Now, faith, and this is what people misunderstand. Faith, there's two meanings to faith. There's faith as credo, my list of beliefs, and faith as belief or trust. My trust, my faith, isn't blind. Right? Some people are lucky enough to have that. I'm not. But of saying, I believe you based on this evidence. It wasn't based on nothing. Right? So when we say increase in faith, it's my trust is increasing. What increases my trust? Knowledge and experience. Right? I, I found out more stuff, so I, I'm more comfortable with it. And I've now tested it out myself, I'm more comfortable with it. Right? So it's, it's this circle that comes in. And that's why there is no human in existence that is not operating under faith. Everybody is putting their trust in something, even if they haven't been able to articulate in what they put it. And that begs the question for all people, not just Christians, how do you know? And when we realize that that's the question of all humanity, it's not long before you figure out almost everybody's in the same boat, with the same onus, the same pressure to justify what they trust. And then it just becomes a question of, why did I choose to trust this?